From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. I'm Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School. I'm joined today by my two co-hosts, Professor of Statistics and Data Science Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics and Data Science Adi Weiner. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week here on Sirius XM Business Radio. So obviously, guys, it's an exciting time here in sports, especially here in the in Philadelphia. Um, obviously, we had some interesting football going on. We have two guests in the show today. We're talking to Sam Apple in Q2, who's going to tell us about the relationship between nutrition and cancer, kind of this unlock science. Uh, later in Q3, we're going to talk to Eric Eager, who, well, we could talk to Eric Eager about every sport in the world, but I assume we're going to talk to him also about the NFL. But uh, obviously, since the NFC Championship and the AFC Championship games just happened, normally I'd say watch or caught your eye in sports. But Shane, let me start with you. What caught your eye in football to start with? But there's actually lots of sports to talk about. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, I, I think it was a, I mean, it was a fun weekend watching uh, the championship. Sunday was was fun. Uh, it was a little disappointing from my view, vantage point, just because you know I was I was very excited for this Phil, you know Philadelphia San Francisco matchup, and though it went the way I was kind of cheering for. You know, it, it was disappointing to sort of, you know, have Brock Purdy get knocked out so early for that game. And that basically made the game a lot less competitive than I think it otherwise would be. So it kind of, you well, know. Let me ask you, let me ask you a question let me, before I get to Adi. So I'll, I'll act as host here and I'll ask you guys some questions. What evidence do you have since he was knocked out so early? I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just asking you your opinion. Why do you think the game would have been more competitive if while he was in the game? Now, the game score was 7-7. Um, there was a controversial Eagles fourth down ball that was actually dropped. We can debate whether the Eagles should have scored that time anyway, but is it, even though the final score was 31 to seven, is your assessment that it would have been a more competitive game with a healthy Brock Purdy? Yes. Yes. My assessment, my assessment based on the controversial statement that Brock Purdy is a better quarterback than Josh Johnson, uh, you know, NFL journeyman. <laughs> they both might for, be better for like might 20 be, teams and uh, who's played no, for like he might be better than Josh. Ever. He might be better than Josh Johnson, but he may not be good enough to actually impact. Like we had talked last week on the show. I just want to get your reaction. I mean, and, he has been good enough to impact the previous eight games he played in. No, 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 no. But I'm just saying the, the thing we talked about last week when we talked about maybe Mahomes was going to be out was he might be worth seven and a half points. Well, we can't imagine Brock Purdy's worth more points than Patrick Mahomes, can we? No, he's not. No, no, why would why would we have to? Because I mean, like Brock Purdy getting knocked out and then having to go back in and not being able to throw. No, that wasn't good. I, I mean, so so I mean, the game became non-competitive because basically by the second half, San Francisco was forced by not having any healthy quarterback that could throw to run when it was already 21. Like like the, the chance of a comeback or any kind of competitive game was eliminated by halftime, basically. So you still feel, then, Adi, I want to get to you just one second. Adi, just want to stay on chain <laughs> for a second. His point. So your belief is that the game, there's nothing you saw, at least, that indicates that the game wouldn't have been competitive had there been a healthy Brock Purdy. You see, I mean, it, it obviously, it would have competitive. Been, you're not I mean, saying the Eagles wouldn't have won the game, yeah, but you're yeah, saying right. it would have been a more competitive game. I, yeah, that's right. I mean, what, caught your, what caught your eye this week? And it might be the other game. Who knows? It was the other game, but I want to just gloss on what, what Shane said, because I thought the game 
one thing that I think about with football is what information are you getting with a score differential? Right. And I think the score differential doesn't really sell the game and the, and the competitive nature of the two teams in a couple of key ways. First of all, as you pointed out, they dropped that ball and got a touchdown anyway um, in the, in the first quarter, making going up seven to nothing. Right. Then there was a, a series of just really bad penalties. This was after, after uh, Purdy was already out. That's, that's obviously, which allowed the Eagles to score again. Um, and then, you know, there was also um, feeling that later on in the game, they, they had to take chances and those chances didn't pay out, allowing Eagles to score even more. And so there's just a big gap between the two teams on the scoreboard. But I think it was it, it was a little closer than that. And it could have been a lot closer, obviously, with pre. Well, let me ask you another question then building on that, Adi. So we the po- the pregame uh, line was Eagles by two and a half, I believe. Yeah. Right? Based on what you saw. I'll even say the eight-game history with Brock Purdy and his success, which is can't be denied. If the Eagles played the 49ers, based now on what you saw, an infinite number of more games, how much do you think the Eagles' average win margin is by? Do you update it at all from two and a half, or do you still – there's nothing you saw – maybe there's just totally incomplete information. There's no way to update yeah. it all. So, you mean, assuming they have a good quarterback again? Yeah, yeah. Assuming Brock Purdy's healthy. I I see it as two two and a half, maybe not much more than that. I would update. You guys, what do you think? I I didn't think Hertz was able to pass the ball successfully. And I I didn't, I mean, he made that first first catch in the first quarter, which was really a drop pass. But I don't, how much passing did he do successfully? The Eagles were able to run the ball fairly well. And that was informative. I mean, they got. But again, I don't think we, 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 I don't think we have enough. We lost information, obviously, on what San Francisco would have done hypothetically if Purdy right. was in there and they could pass. We also kind of lost information on how much the Eagles Absolutely. could have actually passed because they, right. they had no they incentive to. to pass. Yeah. Like the fact that he threw any passes in the second yeah, half. Yeah, right. Why bother? You know, why, why, why would they? Right. Yeah. So, so my I, favorite, it's my favorite correlation and causation. Yeah. First causality. Now, <laughs> I just want to say, I think, I don't think there's no information. I will say the following. I will say it's definitely not a 24-point spread. As a matter of fact, anybody that said more than seven, I think, is totally out of line. There's no way the Eagles are more than a seven-point game in an infinite number of repeated trial games against the Niners. I think the Eagles were just, from what I saw, it's hard to know, though, but I think the Eagles were a better team than the 49ers. I think the Eagles were, even during the initial part of the game when Hurdy was healthy, the Eagles were able to stop the run. I think the Eagles were a fairly effective team. But either way, um, what you, Adi, you also said the other game. What caught your eye in the other okay, game? So the, the other thing, what caught me eye were those two kind of penalties at the end which, from which the game turned. And, and there's a lot of talk about what, do you, what does it mean when penalties um, create, the, basically cause one team to win. And that's really what happened in this case. And how is that different than other things that are unpredictable and not necessarily um, and, and like, like a fumble, for example, that, that often causes the game to go one way and the other way, and they just sort of happen. But I really don't like that comparison because if a team fumbles, well, at least they did it. You know, the, the active players were the ones who dropped it. And of course, they're unpredictable, but still, you, it's, you, you're the cause. Uh, that when it, when it, when it, I mean, I don't think they're, they're called, they were necessarily wrong. And that's always the, the, I don't want to kind of debate that. I don't have a, don't know enough about it to, from the first place, but 
it just feels sort of sad that a game can turn it on like yeah. that one quarter of a second push that, I mean, which I, come on, Eric, you know, when we were kids, that wasn't, a, that wasn't an issue. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and it, it wasn't, and yet that's the whole game. Uh, and no, uh, I, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you. I mean, I'll say that, I mean, you know, the, the roughing the pass or penalty, I mean, it did, it was what led to Kansas city winning the game. Yes. That doesn't mean the refs handed Kansas city, the refs aren't the reason Kansas City's in the AFC Championship game. I don't think it was a very well officiated game, but the Bengals right. had plenty of chances, and exactly. that and that was a I mean that was an uncontroversial roughing the passer call. I mean, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe maybe you know back thirty years ago when like you know there were, you know we didn't actually even call roughing the passer, but I mean that that uh, in the class of roughing the you know among the distribution of roughing the passer penalties. I've that one's uncontroversial. All right. Well, let me ask you. He was clearly out of bounds, but still it's, it's just a tough time for that to happen because it does basically, it ensured a Kansas city victory. Well, ensured an opportunity for a Kansas city. He can still miss the 45 yard field goal, but Butker's not missing. Sure. Sure. But let me ask you guys a question. So a couple things. So let's just go through the four teams and what, what you learned or nothing about those teams. So let's, uh, Adi, I'll start with you this time. We'll just go cycle through and we'll just go one team at a time. Adi, based on what you saw, are the Eagles better or worse than you thought or neither worse nor better? And if depending on your answer, why? Why don't you, why don't you, why don't you have any movement or do you have some movement? Well, okay. So I'm inclined to say they're a little bit better, but my, my, based on obviously having won, <laughs> that's always a good indicator. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think they, fa- they placed, they faced San Francisco at full strength as we talked about. And I don't think the giants were very good. Um, and I do also think that they had a mostly a pretty weak schedule and, and when they played Dallas, they lost, even though uh, Jalen hurts wasn't in um, and um, they just didn't have – they weren't really tested that much. I do think – what on the side of better, I think their defense is, looks pretty good. I mean, there's no way – and I think their running game looks good, particularly Jalen Hurts, and he seemed to be able to run, at, particularly to, at later in the game. Um, I'm a little suspicious that he's going to be able to throw to open receivers, but I don't know if the uh, if the uh, uh, the KC's defense is all that good. I'll, I'll turn to you And it's guys. not great. It's definitely not against the run, which is going to be a big problem for them. So, right. Shane, let me move to you. Is San Francisco worse or better? Or let me ask you a different way. Next year, if you had to project, whoever's the 49ers quarterback, might be Tom Brady, might be Brock <laughs> Purdy. Might, well, I don't know. They're talking Tom Brady. Might All be right. Brock Purdy. Might be Trey Lance. Who's a better team next year, the 49ers or the Eagles? If everything stays the same and assuming the 49ers can have your favorite of those three quarterbacks, Eagles. who's the better team? Eagles are the better team next year. Um, because I think most of – San Francisco's greatness right now, and I do think, you know, they definitely merited being in the final four, is based on their defense. And defense, it's just harder to hold that together in a consistent way. Right. I mean, were you surprised the Eagles? Were you surprised the Eagles put 31 on the board? No, 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 because I think the defense, I I, I think, um, I mean, the game kind of got out, you know, I mean, I think a lot, as we were just discussing, a large amount of those points were kind of, you know, San Francisco was forced into a kind of game strategy situation that was very disadvantageous. I mean, I do think Philadelphia being able to run and pass protect against that San Francisco defense does bode well for the Super Bowl. You know, I, I mean, you know, again, turning to the other game, one thing that really impressed me about the Chiefs 
that I didn't necessarily kind of, or that's not something that we think about with the Chiefs, is their ability to kind of get pressure absolutely on the bagels. I mean, Chris Jones was kind of the number one difference maker, I think, in that game. And I'm, I'm kind of intrigued. I think that's going to be a really exciting part of the Super Bowl matchup is I think the, the, the Eagles' offensive line is much better than the Bengals' offensive line. Agreed. And so, uh, you know, I, I think uh, to a certain extent, I think the Eagles are an even more difficult matchup for Kansas City, at least in that particular respect. And so that's something that I think intrigues me. And that's something I learned about both the Eagles at their offensive line is just really excellent because they went up against essentially one of the, the, the number one defense and that bodes well, at least for the Super Bowl. The I, ability I, for the Eagles to defend against Patrick Mahomes. I mean, really the ability for any team to consistently defend against Patrick Mahomes is, I mean, I, I wouldn't have any confidence in that, but. So Adi, do you have any forecasts for the Super Bowl? Any thoughts I, about. I'll, I'll throw in one thought that came out of some research that, that, uh, that Ryan Brill and I, my graduate student, um, and it makes me fear for, fear for the Eagles. And that is, we, we, we have this very interesting model. Eventually, we'll finish it, we'll publish it, we'll talk about it, that allows us to sort of break down all the different aspects of the, of the team's uh, and individual team's attributes. It's offensive, it's defensive, your opponent's offensive defense. And mm-hmm. one of the things that just sticks out, and break, we break down the offense into quarterback and non-quarterback, what just sticks out so dramatically when you want to predict future performance of teams. So we have a very careful way of making sure that our forecasts don't use the future to predict the future. That's a terrible idea when you're doing statistics. By the way, just to, just to interrupt you for a second, in yeah. my home field of marketing, yeah. we do that all the time in the following sense. We have statistical models with Ys and Xs. We assume when we predict the future that we observe future Xs. The problem yeah. is those yeah. Xs are not randomly set, nor are they necessarily, obviously they're not known. So I just want to comment, no field really is immune Unless, you know, if you're predicting Ys from Xs, you got to generate those future Xs from somewhere. But please keep going. So, so one of the things we discovered was, and it's not, it's, not, it's not new, but to us it was shocking, is that your quarterback just is so important. And it's so unbelievably important relative to everything else that the difference between Mahomes and, and Hertz, I think, is substantial. And, I hope that's. I hope that was just a sanity check of your model, not the main finding. Because I mean, no, 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 gonna, no, no. You're not going to revolutionize the industry with that one. Well, no, you're not. But actually, but we actually have some good quantization on it. Yeah. So we actually tell you how big those things are. Um, so the number one is the quarterback. Number two is the rest of the offense. And what's interesting is just how small defense is in predicting future games. It describes past pretty nicely, but it doesn't predict future very well. Now, we, again, these are things that are somewhat known. I'm not, I'm not, we're not, we're not giving new information about, about football. I'm sure Eric, when he comes on, will tell you, yeah, we know that. Um, but, uh, but and again, I'm trying to predict the future here and the biggest statistic, the most important and salient and predictive statistic about the future is the quality of your quarterback. And, uh, Mahomes is the best quarterback right now, and and that I think and, and I thought you could see that when he just makes these sort of magnificent on the run, on, non-standard throws, just just does stuff and makes things happen, and that would be my number one fear. We talk a lot about the offensive line and how their run game and the defense and blah blah blah, but so much of it comes down to quarterback. So you know, it's interesting. I think no one would disagree that uh, Mahomes is well. You can put any quarterbacks in there, and he's the best quarterback. I mean, he's the best. Um, it'll be interesting to see how well he can play injured. He's not going to be fully healthy. That'll be interesting to see. 
Um, it, it's just an interesting game to me. Again, also, because I think I forget if Shane had said it, the quality of the Eagles defense seems pretty strong. And I think it'll be a very sound test. And look, I saw a Buccaneers team two years ago with a very good defense and a very good offense absolutely dismantle Kansas City in a rout. So, mm-hmm. and you can't tell me even two years ago, maybe Mahomes. That was, was a better right. Kansas City team, I think. Than, I mean, I'll be interested to hear Eric. Which Kansas City on. team? Wait, which Kansas the one, City The team? one two years ago, the one in 2020 that got dismantled by the. Uh, I Buccaneers. think that's a better team. Yeah, exactly. I think Kansas City was a better team two years ago playing Tampa Bay. I mean, honestly, anytime Kansas City loses, it surprises me because Mahomes is so good yeah. at what he does. And, and Andy Reid is good. I mean, yeah, it's always surprising when they lose. That's why I always pick them to win. But they do lose occasionally. But you do need this kind of, you know, you know, you need a really good team to beat them. And I think Philadelphia is certainly capable of beating them. And I wouldn't necessarily even give Kansas City a ton of edge like again and you're kind of if we played this game without a thousand times i think it would be at most like you know 52 percent to kc or something like that but now of course the betting line has the the betting line has the eagles favored by two and a half probably a lot of that has to do with the uncertainty of the health of mahomes's ankle i think you know, and the a power, lot of other injuries on the offensive KC right now. I, I agree with that. The power rankings all year long had Kansas City and Philadelphia, certainly in the top three, but I think Kansas City uh, slightly ahead. You know, it's also, you mentioned, I'll be interested in your guys' reaction. You, you also mentioned Andy Reid. You know, at least he's finally getting to a coin-flipping coach, and here's what I mean. So he's one and three in the Super Bowl, but if he wins the Super Bowl, he'll be two and three, right? Or no, sorry, if he wins this one, he'll be two and two. This is his fourth Super Bowl. He's four and five in the championship game. So, you know, not worse than a coin flip. But for years, that was his stain with the Eagles. He was 0-1 in the Super Bowl, 1-3 and in the championship game. At least now, I mean, I'm interested in your thoughts, Shane, because obviously, you know, we have the greatest coach of all time, your team, New England. Um, But at least now, it's hard to argue Andy Reid. He's been to nine championship games, and he's won four of them. Okay. That's not so bad. He's been to three Super Bowls. No, I mean, that's excellent. I, I mean, honestly, you know, like any any great coach or any like I, I do think kind of the Brady Belichick combo Patriots have just broken our brains in terms of what to nor how to norm our expectation because they were. Crazy. But like, I mean, if you think about it, like to have a 500 record in a, at the conference championship or Super Bowl level is really good. You're only playing the most excellent of teams at that point. And I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I, if you compare it to Tom Brady, who's 10 and four in the championship round and seven and three in the Super Bowl, then, then you're like, oh, well, that's obviously, you know, that's like at the 60, 70% clip winning. That I don't think is, is, is the appropriate norm for comparing most coaches or quarterbacks. I think to be like even 50% at, at the point where, you know, you're only playing the top teams is, is, is actually quite, quite good. I mean, like, you know, so I, I yeah, I, I think, I, I think Andy Reid, obviously his KC time, you know, I, I think his KC time has been vindicated, uh, has vindicated him as a coach in a couple different ways. I think he specifically, obviously the way you're talking about where just he's won a little bit more often. So those overall proportions are moving closer to 0.5, but right. I also think it's just sort of his kind of in game, you know, a lot of the things that he, you know, had a lot of complaints about it during his time in Philadelphia, some of the in-game and late-game clock management strategy types things, 
he has, it seems he has improved at. Improved. I mean, part of it is again with personnel like Mahomes, maybe that's kind of a little bit of a cheat code on, you know, like game situations. But I, I do think he's sort of, I think he's demonstrated improvement in kind of the in game strategy. And obviously he's also just kind of accumulated more success. So it's kind of changing his legacy as well. But I think if, it, if we had only judged Andy Reid based on his Eagles time, I think he would be unfairly maligned with his legacy. I think we, we kind of like, Hide the fact that four straight championship appearances or whatever they did. And now, five, an and now five straight with the Chiefs. And now five straight with the Chiefs. You know, it's hidden, you know, some of it, like the fact that he wasn't converting a lot of those into wins, I think was an, an unfair kind of, you know, malignment against him. So guys, in the last minute we have, Adi, I'd like you to give me a 95% confidence interval for the score differential in the game. Matter of fact, I'll go first just to make it clear to our listeners what I'm talking about. I would say it's probably, oh, I may have to go from plus 14 to minus 14 for either team to cover 95% of the intervals. Maybe I'll go to plus or minus 10. Uh, that'll be my 95% interval. Plus to Eagles win by 10 to Eagles lose by 10. Adi, in the last 30 seconds, what's your interval, Shane? Right, what's yours? I'm going to call it a, a prediction interval. Um, and I will say that it's bigger than yours. That's all I can tell you. It's plus definitely. My, I'm I would gonna call mine a minus fourteen. To plus 14. Yeah. yeah, I'm yeah, going to call mine a posterior predictive interval, and it's like <laughs> minus twenty-one to plus twenty-one. I, I, I think, in other words, I think a, a ninety-five percent interval has to include the blowout. Like a lot of Super Bowls are blowouts, even yeah. if we don't predict them ahead of time. And so, I think there's too much of a chance of a blowout. Well, I, I think really I- have a wide interval. Yep, I'll tell you guys, that's why they play the games. It's very exciting. And thank you for correcting me. It's not a confidence interval. It's at best, at worst, a prediction interval. And if it's best, it's a posterior predictive interval. So that's been one quarter, guys, of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, everyone stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to the second quarter of Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing Statistics and Data Science, and I'm here with my co-host for this segment, Adi Weiner. Uh, some combination of us, Shane Jensen and Cade Massey here every week here on Sirius XM Radio. Um, Adi, I think we both agree one of the best things for the last eight plus years about our show has been the guests that we get to talk to that bring the expertise in whatever that given area is to our show here, Wharton Moneyball, and this quarter is no exception. We're extremely happy to have Sam Apple with us. Sam is on the faculty of the Master's in Science Writing and Master in Writing programs at Hopkins. He's the author of Ravenous, Schlepping Through the Alps, an American Parent, and his work, well, it's appeared in every place you would want if you were a writer to appear, the New York Times Magazine, New Yorker, Atlantic, Wired, LA Times. Well, I could spend all ESPN, the magazine, I could spend just the rest of our time talking about where Sam's work has appeared. So, Sam, uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, so why don't we just start with just some basic stuff, and then, you know, Adi has some more maybe maybe specific questions. Um, what got you interested in science writing. You wrote a book recently, obviously, Ravenous. What got you interested in nutrition and that as a topic area for you to study? Sure. Yeah, I didn't start out as a science writer. I was sort of a general nonfiction writer, 
wrote, uh, you know, memoirs, personal essays, reported pieces. But um, my second book is, is really when I started to make the transition into science writing. I was writing uh, about the experience of raising my first son. And in the process, I became curious about, you know, parenting practices, whether or not there was any sort of validity to the science that recommended this approach to sleep training or that one. So I started looking into the science really because I just wanted to figure out the best way to raise my kid. And, you know, I you probably won't be surprised to hear that the, the science wasn't as sound as, as many people think as, as I thought myself before I started to look into it. And so that really sort of opened my eyes a little bit to uh, some some of the problems in science that uh, became even more apparent when I moved on to uh, looking into nutrition research and nutritional epidemiology uh, in general. But it, it was sort of a gradual transition. And, and I was really um, awakened to a lot of the nutrition issues by the science writer and journalist Gary Taubes, who had a uh, famous piece in the New York Times magazine. Uh, the headline was, you know, what if it's all been a big fat lie? And it was about the dietary advice we'd uh, been given most of our lives that I certainly grew up with, that you should eat only low fat and, uh, you know, eat as many carbs as you want, really, as long as you avoid fat. So so that was sort of the start of the process. And then uh, kind of, you know, gained momentum from there. Let me ask you just one question before I turn it over to Adi. So um, when we as statisticians, so Shane's here, Adi's here, I'm here, when we hear about, let's call it bad science, or maybe we don't know what we think we know, if we could run, ra- I just want to make sure since you're not, a, I assume you're not a statistician by training, but you've done a lot of work in the area. Very, very sounds far like. from it. <laughs> yeah, far from it. Um, if we could do randomized experiments for everything, then science would be better in the sense that randomization would take care of any confounds. We could vary the treatments as we wanted. We could maybe measure a whole set of outcomes. Was your concern just from a lay perspective that these were observational studies? Maybe a lot of the findings were anecdotal. They weren't based on large samples. I'm just, for our audience here, who's both a sports and statistics audience, from your perspective, what does it mean? Like, we don't know what we think we know, and there might be some myth and bad science going on. Sure. Well, you know, in the context of nutrition in particular, you know, the real challenge, you know, as you've mentioned, is that, you know, we can't, we don't have the, you know, blinded trials that that we'd like, the RCTs with, you know, large groups of people that, you know, would go on for many, many years. It's really impossible to do the kind of study we really want for most diseases, certainly with respect to cancer, where, you know, in a perfect world, I think you'd randomize people into a, like, you know, sugar eating and non-sugar eating group and, and watch them for, for decades. But, you know, short of that, you know, we've relied and, you know, the science behind many of our nutritional recommendations have been just, you know, these observational studies that you've mentioned. And, you know, in the case of, you know, I'm sure all of you know much more about this than I do, but in, you know, in the case of nutrition in particular, uh, you know, these associations have not proven very strong. And when they are able to be, you know, tested in, in even smaller ways and RCTs, they tend to, to not hold up very well at all. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's precisely these sort of nutritional epidemiology studies that, that have led us to, uh, mistakes about, you know, the relationships to, uh, you know, specific nutrients and specific diseases, you know, as I'm sure you all know, it's, it's not hard to, to find an association if you test enough variables. So, uh, Sam, I wanted to, I wanted just to 
lay a little background here because as you know this is a sports statistic show but about three years ago almost exactly we started devoting most of our time and while sports was really on hiatus to talking about science and COVID in, in particular in medicine and what we're doing now is occasionally doing segments where we kind of talk about kind of statistical controversies almost in science and, and other areas so what you led you to what led me to read your book and actually and bring you on today was a, a series of articles I saw within a space of about a week, beginning with an FDA recommendation telling us that that uh, Lucky Charms is better than butter and meat um, on, a, on a food pyramid, an observation that we spent the last 50 years studying al Alzheimer's um, disease and getting absolutely nowhere because we can't leave a, a hypothesis that sort of landed on our heads about amyloid uh, proteins, and no one seems to want to shake it despite the fact that we've made no pro progress. Simultaneously, I read a meta-analysis describing how um, it, there seems to be no dietary connection between fat and um, in our cholesterol in our diet and the cholesterol in our blood. And then the next day, the New York Times runs a giant article telling me how important it is to eat a low-fat diet. And then I say, see you, you, I see your book come across the Twitter feed. And I'm like, wait a minute. He's talking about exactly what, what the issue is, which is why it is so hard to make sense out of all this um, the connections between what we eat and how we essentially live. And then I read your book, which I'm just going to throw out at least for at least once and probably again, it's a great book because it combines lots and lots of things, including a wonderful story about this man, Otto Warburg, which I want you to tell us about and, and, um, and how that kind of led to the connections between cancer and diet and some of the other issues along the way. So, so Otto Warburg is a sort of central figure in this kind of detective story, almost, almost, we don't, you don't call it a statistical detective story, but I actually do think of it that way because you can't really study nutrition without without having observational studies. And so it becomes a, a statistic story. So tell us about our Otter Warburg and, and how that and how everything leaps off of that. Sure. And uh, thank you for the kind words about the book. Um, yeah, so I, I was, you know, going back to what I was saying before, I was interested in, you know, nutritional epidemiology and, you know, this hypothesis that we may have gotten a lot of the classic advice about avoiding fat in particular wrong. And, you know, as I was reading about this, I found the work of Gary Taubes, uh, the science journalist. And, you know, he, he noted that, you know, many of these diseases that we call, you know, chronic diseases, they used to be called diseases of civilization, tend to uh, sort of cluster together, obesity, diabetes, heart disease. And so I was reading about that and, and was surprised to see that, that cancer also clusters together with these diseases and also appears to become more and more, um, more and more common beginning in the late 19th century and then throughout much of the 20th century. Uh, so that, that was sorry, sorry to interrupt, but do, do you kind of mean clustering over time, like, you know, how they've kind of come into society or do you mean clustering? by individual, like people who are more likely to have one of these diseases is uh, like are more likely to have the other. Yeah, Shane, I think that's a statistical word. Uh, you word you're, yeah, he, I think he means that it all of a sudden civilization started observing these diseases that we didn't really observe before. I think I think that's really what you're describing, right, Sam? Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I mean, that they, they were relatively uncommon and then they become they, uh, they all become more common in the late 19th century, sometimes in, in the same individuals are more likely to have you know, both obesity, diabetes. Sam, let me ask you a question just as a, as a writer. Does that make, just as someone that doesn't study nutrition, but that makes, the first thing that comes to my mind is maybe there's a common cause to all of this. Is that what led you to your thinking or did you have a different hypothesis when you kind of saw that evidence? 
Yeah, well, that that was the initial thought, and and it didn't particularly surprise me that there was a common cause to obesity and, and diabetes and and even heart disease because there's been a decent amount of, of science about that uh, for a number of years. You know, really, it was in the um, Gerald Reeve, the the Stanford uh, scientist, really figured all that out about thirty years ago. That's still not. Not as well known as it should be, but but what surprised me most of all was that uh, that cancer was part of this cluster as well and seemed to follow the same trajectory. And I really didn't think that cancer was related to diet, you know, to the extent that I heard anything about it. I assumed it was, you know, sort of quackery and, you know, the type of stuff that, that's really, you know, synonymous with bad science. So I never took it very seriously. I was very surprised to see that cancer might be a part of this same story. And so that that's what really intrigued me and led me to, um, you know, start digging in and, and doing more research. And that's when I came across Otto Warburg, the uh, German scientist of the 20th century, early 20th century. And he makes this really fascinating discovery in, in 1923 that cancer cells take up nutrients in a unique way, you know, whereas most of our cells will you know, take up the glucose in our blood, the blood sugar, and and break it down in our mitochondria with oxygen. This is, you know, why we breathe. This is cellular respiration. The cancer cells actually turn to this backup process known as glycolysis and, uh, you know, break it the glucose down very inefficiently and spit it out of our cells in the form of lactic acid. So this is an unusual thing. What was even more unusual is that uh, normally a cell it was known that cells could do this, but it was thought that they would only do it in the case of an emergency if there's not enough oxygen. And that's actually what happens when we do really intense exercise. We can't supply oxygen at the rate that we need it to break down our fuel. So we turn to this glycolysis and make lactic acid. But what Warburg showed was that cancer cells were doing this, even though there was oxygen available, cancer cells seemed to prefer this style of eating where they could take up a lot of glucose and, uh, it was, you know, it was a very big discovery. And, um, you know, Warburg was one of the most famous scientists in the world at the time. He uh, won the Nobel Prize in 1931, actually, for a different discovery. Um, and, and so it led to this whole field of, of cancer metabolism, where researchers were trying to understand, you know, how a cancer cell takes up nutrients, how it uses those nutrients to grow. And then, um, you know, in the post-war period, this research sort of fell out of favor for a variety of different reasons. And, you know, maybe we can go more into that. But, you know, first and foremost, I think that the biggest thing was the discovery uh, of cancer mutations and the, you know, the structure of DNA, of course, in the 1950s. And it led to this genetic revolution of cancer, which has been, you know, extremely important and valuable in a million different ways. But it also led to uh, metabolism and Warburg's research disappearing. And that's what my book tries to do is sort of bring this back into the discussion or, or to celebrate the research. So what, I assume he was not studying. I mean, so when you say he can't, he's studying cancer, I assume you specific type of cancer. I mean, there's a myriad of different cancer. I mean, can't brain cancer is very different than, you know, skin cancer is very different than lung cancer. Um, and so like, I, I assume he, he I assume he, made this kind of this kind of finding for a specific type of cancer yeah i think, well, I think it's all cancers have this i mean well it's it's about 70 percent or more um but you know at the, at the time now we have a much better understanding of the genetic differences between the cancers when warburg made these discoveries there wasn't as much of understanding but he tested it in many different types of cancer and every type he tested it in both in animals and humans to the extent that he was able 
show this effect. He thought it was 100% of, of cancers had this. Now they say it's probably 70%. So it's a very common eating pattern. And actually, you know, other proliferating cells that need to grow rapidly that are not cancerous will also sometimes, you know, take up nutrients in this way. So it's it's basically an eating style that allows a cell to grow quickly. They take the glucose, they use some of it for energy. And then one of the big discoveries is that they also use it as building blocks for daughter cells. So it really does uh, affect a huge- Really interested in Adi's questions to you, because this has to have somewhere nutrition's coming in here. So Adi, keep going. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, but before we get to like nutrition, which I think is going to be the, 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 uh, the home run here, just a couple of things that really bothered me that you that your book answers, which is I was under the understanding that cancer is a modern disease because modern people live a lot longer and cancer is a disease of the aged. But you, you, what your book talks about is that we even even in Warburg's time, we knew that that wasn't an, an effective explanation. There was way too much cancer. Um, uh, even after controlling or adjusting for age. And yet, and you found uh, that they're, they're basically, uh, one of the points you make is that cancer is just not seen outside of, uh, I don't know how you describe it, either industrialized nations or westernized diets. Can you just elaborate on that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I started the, you know, first started to look into this, I assumed, as I think most people do, that the reason cancer was less common is that, you know, people just didn't live old enough to get cancer. And it, you know, the, the aging is explained some portion of the rise, certainly, but it can't explain it away. You know, among the things I, I discovered, which, you know, maybe all of you already know, is that one of the reasons, you know, our life expectancies have expanded so much is because, you know, we've eliminated so many of the causes of early death and, and childhood. So that, that's made up a big difference. And, um, you know, people have been living, you know, throughout history into to old age for, you know, tens of thousands of years. And, you know, we know this from from ancient literature, of course, and from various other fields. And, um, you know, cancer is almost never talked about, uh, you know, it, it certainly existed. There's one, a single record from ancient Egyptian texts, which is something that appears to be cancer, but it's quite rare. And then, you know, in the 19th century in particular, it really becomes more common around the middle of the 19th century. And um, what's striking is that you have these doctors, some of them are missionaries, uh, some of them are, you know, just traveling around the world, working with different populations. And these are people that are, you know, experienced Western doctors that are familiar with cancer, know about what age cancer start to arise. And they're, they're just astonished. One of them uh, famously um, uses um, one, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but the quote is, you know, I was astonished to find no cancers in, in the Gabon, uh, the people, the Gabonese. Uh, so, you know, these doctors would spend years examine thousands of patients and just not find uh, cancers. And then, um, you know, if they stayed for decades in these populations, took on a more Western lifestyle, then sure enough, the cancers would arise. And so at the question, and I, th I don't think this is controversial, what everybody agrees on is something in the Western lifestyle and in the modern industrial lifestyle, whatever you want to call it, makes cancer much more likely. The question is what? And that's you know, been the hardest statistical problem to figure out. Well, so one of the things that I think is interesting about the book is you describe Warburg and his experiences. And then right after the war, it, you talk kind of a little bit about how smoking um, was cracked. Uh, we, we, we didn't realize that smoking caused cancer. Now we look back at it again and go, well, how, how do we miss it? But we did miss it. And that kind of led to the this basic idea that, that cancer is kind of be caused by something, whether you're this genetic defects or toxins or smoking. And, and I think in some ways, this the, the, the connection between what we eat and cancer 
was just lost. And is, is that a fair assessment? And because it took about 60, 70 years almost before we've rediscovered that as a possibility. Yeah. The, um, oh, by the way, I was going to say before that um, it was Albert Schweitzer who, who was working at the Gavin. He's the famous German scientist. I couldn't remember his name. But yeah, going to the, the smoking, I think, is a really interesting case because, you know, that's when epidemiology of this type really comes on to the surface. We have these, you know, British epidemiologists in particular who really, you know, figured out that smoking causes cancer. And it was quite compelling because the associations were so overwhelmingly strong. And the, it was thought that, um, you know, we could do the same thing with cancer, just, you know, do these sort of retrospective studies, see what people ate or how they live their lives and figure out, you know, which people were more likely to get cancer. And that would be that. But it, it turned out to be just much messier. There's one scientist that um, I think Gary Taubes originally quoted him, but he said, you know, compared to nutrition, figuring out smoking was like a turkey shoot. You know, it's just so easy to to make these strong associations. But with cancer, um, you know, they there's this famous pie chart that came out in the early 80s, and they tried to go through each potential cause. And they put, um, you know, chemicals in the environment at 4% and, you know, sun exposure at 10%, whatever it was. With, but there was so much uncertainty with respect to nutrition in the causes of cancer. They said it could be anywhere from 10% to 70%. So, you know, they just really didn't know. And at the time this came out, you know, we didn't have these associations between obesity and, and cancer, which we have now, partially because there wasn't as much obesity. So so the picture has changed a lot since then, but because there was uncertainty at the time, it sort of got pushed aside. You know, this famous document that was actually part of the war on cancer, um, you know, declared, you know, sort of threw up, the epidemiologists sort of threw up their hands with nutrition and it sort of got left there for a very long time. It's still left there, I think. We're here talking to Sam Apple. Sam is on the faculty of the Master's in Science Writing and Master's in Writing programs at Hopkins. He's the author, well, he's author of at least three books, but we're talking, about, I assume, about his book, Ravenous, right now. And um, we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. So maybe, and then I'll turn things back over to Adi, um, what would you say are the major findings between nutrition and cancer? Like, if you had to say, what are the two or three big headlines that all of our listeners should know about, what would they be? Sure. So, you know, going back to what I said before, there there was, you know, lots of epidemiology over the decades, which, you know, there's a famous chart, maybe you're familiar with it, where they show different foods that, you know, different studies, like half of them show this food causes cancer, half of them show this food prevents cancer. And you can go on and on down the list. And this has been done with you know, individual foods and also with macronutrients. So some epidemiology studies have found relations to meat and cancer, others to sugar and cancer. So all of that stuff, you know, my starting point with all of that is that there, the associations weren't enough that, you know, they were hypothesis generating perhaps, but, um, you know, wasn't really going to get us to, to any solid answer. So what's been interesting to me is, is to kind of pair these epidemiological studies with what's emerged in recent decades about the mechanisms of the cancer cell and what we learned about how a cancer cell eats. So, um, you know, going back to the story we talked about a little bit about the rise of cancer in, in the 19th century and that there might be some underlying cause, you know, the question is, you know, what, what changed in our diet? And, and one hypothesis would be sugar. Sugar correlates very well. The, uh, when I say sugar, I don't just mean any carbohydrates. I mean, specifically the sweet white stuff, sucrose 
so then the question is, if sugar, you know, correlates well with the rise of cancer and other chronic diseases, what do we know about uh, what sugar does to the body? And what do we know about the mechanisms of the cancer cell? And that's where I think it gets really interesting, because there's just a lot of science in recent decades about the relationship between sugar and how it affects this, this hormone in our body, uh, insulin, and, and insulin uh, and, and the promotion of cancer in particular. So that, that's the story that I really focus on. And then the last part of my book is dietary sugar, what we know about how it affects insulin levels, and then the very, you know, strong associations and, um, you know, mechanistic studies linking insulin to cancer. And uh, that would also, in theory, be the underlying cause that we talked about before that might explain obesity, diabetes, heart disease as well, that what all these conditions might have in common is, is a condition known as uh, insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia. And that, um, you know, if that's correct, whatever food is more likely is most likely to trigger that condition is probably most likely to be one of the underlying causes. So, uh, so Sam, one of the things that's really fascinating is about, you know, the world was a sort of obsessed with molecular biology. And we sort of forgot about biochemistry and that's what, you know, Warburg was, was a, he was a biochemist and, and we solved so much of that so long ago. And then we got distracted in some sense by the, the, the genetics and the molecular structure. It, but what you were what you were describing is 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 also a, almost a mechanism. So the problem we have in statistics is that you know correlation is not causation. Everybody understands that, and so you can see correlations with obesity and and sugar consumption in the West. We didn't. That's that's something that I don't think we really did as a society. Maybe because of the economics or uh, that white that white stuff um, that's in in everything, including our peanut butter in large quantities, and it's crazy. We didn't have that. And it correlates with this thing, but that doesn't prove anything. And so uh, the insulin, there's actually, there's, there's actually, I think um, you described a, a, a metabolic process that ex- sort of explains how insulin is resistance can, can make your body not be able to kind of stop cancer cells from growing. Is that something that is, 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 is at early stages or is this something that we kind of know about or, or did I get that all wrong? Uh, no, I, I think that's mostly right. Uh, I mean, uh, I'll go into a little bit of the the science, but but stop me if this is <laughs> off point or, or too boring. But but basically, the the hypothesis is that um, you know we eat we eat certain foods that um, you know cause the ins- insulin response to the carbohydrates we eat. You know, when we eat a lot of carbs, you know, the insulin rises in our blood, and its job is to tell our cells to take up that food. I used to joke that insulin is like my Jewish grandmother saying, eat, eat, take it up. You got to, you got to put everything away. You know, it rises a little bit in response to protein and maybe a tiny bit in response to fat, but, but first and foremost to the carbohydrates we eat. And so uh, in type one diabetes, you don't have any insulin and this is becomes a real problem because you can't get the glucose out of your blood In type two diabetes you know, what happens is your cells stop listening to insulin. That's why it's called insulin resistance. And so your body can still produce the insulin. And when your cells stop listening, your body responds by producing more and more insulin. And and so it's really the opposite of type one, at least in the initial stages, where in type one, you have no insulin and type two, which is the very common kind of diabetes. That's what uh, most of us have. Uh, you actually have more insulin, you know, much more insulin than a, than a typical person who's, you know, metabolically healthy would have. And so that extra insulin, you know, does a lot of things to the body. It 
you know, it's trying to get the glucose out of, out of your blood and into the cells. But in the meantime, it gives all your cells, all the fat tissue, the message to store nutrients, because that's part of what insulin does. And unfortunately, cancer cells are very responsive to insulin. You know, some cells might not be listening, but cancer cells are listening very well. They tend to be covered in insulin receptors. And the most common mutations in cancer are actually those that are in the insulin pathway. It's called the uh, PI3K pathway. And so uh, in a state in which your body is flooded with insulin, you might have, you know, these incipient tumors, these microscopic tumors that have extra insulin receptors. And it's like a constant growth signal. You know, it's like 50 times the normal level of insulin all day. And, you know, the, the hypothesis is that this is giving these cells a real growth advantage, cells that might not otherwise take off or be wiped out by the immune system. And um, this wouldn't necessarily explain all cancers, but but certainly the obesity-linked cancers, uh, it would make sense that, that insulin is a part of this story. And there are, you know, 13 obesity linked cancers. And, and I think, you know, that, that list is likely to grow. You know, they account for, um, you know, 600,000. Yeah. Diabetes. I mean, I, I guess that, that kind of begs the question. I mean, get, considering type two diabetes and cancer, two of our kind of top current, like modern diseases, you know, if, if this mechanism is relatively universal, you'd, wouldn't we see a very large co-occurrence of those two things in people? Like, you know, you know, I mean, if, if the underlying mechanism is driving both of these diseases, I kind of feel like, you know, I mean, you you know, do we, do we see that co-occurrence basically in people Yeah, uh, for most cancers? And do we we see that in animal models too? Yeah, we do see that co-occurrence. It's maybe, you know, it's pretty pronounced, but maybe not as striking as you would initially think, but it's more striking when you realize that, um, you know, the, con- the underlying condition, insulin resistance exists for years or decades uh, before diabetes arises. The reason that's the case is that, um, you know, when, you know, this phenomenon I described before, where you have extra glucose in your blood, your pancreas responds by putting out more insulin, that actually, you know, it does the job. Your pancreas overreacts and it does the job of getting the glucose out of your out of your blood and into your cells. Um, but um, you don't when you get your blood test, your glucose isn't elevated. So it takes decades for for doctors to discover that uh, we're insulin resistant because uh, I mean, to discover that there's any underlying problem because the blood glucose looks normal. Most doctors don't test for the insulin. So if you look at, you know, insulin resistance in Cancer associates quite strongly, but it's not necessarily full-blown diabetes that's being diagnosed. Um, you know, by one estimate, you know, something like 80% of the population is insulin resistant. And, you know, that's much more than is diabetic. So I think the correlation is much stronger than it seems because we're looking at diabetes rather than just insulin resistance. But well, Sam, let me give let me give Adi the last question here. Well, we have there's time for yeah, one. I mean, question. there's so much here to talk about. I mean, by the way, if you want to read the book, you can you can you can have this amazing kind of side story about how Otto Warburg managed to survive being Jewish in Nazi Germany, still holding on to his institute because Hitler was sort of obsessed with the with the nutritional reasons for why cancer exists, and and Warburg was studying that. Um, just to finish with that, is is there anybody looked sort of at the people who aren't insulin resistant, and do they have very low cancer rates, or is there or is that genetic and or never been studied at all? Anything in that score? Because that seems to be potentially well, a fruitful statistical direction to go in. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the hypothesis we talked before about these societies that hadn't yet adopted a Western lifestyle and, you know, they they remained cancer, you know, largely cancer free, largely free of diabetes and obesity. So the hypothesis is, is that, you know, they, they had that protection because they were insulin sensitive. They were not insulin resistant and that that was the key. But, um, you know, certainly need more research. And I use the word hypothesis because all this stuff is you know, we don't have the type of studies that we want that I talked about at the very beginning, and, and maybe we never will. But I, I think the uh, the science is quite strong. The, the scientist who is most uh, convinced me about a lot of this is Lewis Cantley, who's uh, at Harvard now. Um, and, and he's really been the one who sort of mapped this insulin pathway within the in the cell and has done a lot of research. And so, you know, if people are interested in the subject, I would encourage them to look up his work as well. Well, Sam, I'd like to thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. We've been joined by Sam Apple. Sam is on the faculty at Johns Hopkins in a number of the writing programs. He's the author of his recent book, Ravenous. You can find his work in lots of places. You can also follow Sam, if you'd like, at samapple.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Apple One. Sam, thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. So this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, Please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports and statistics collide. My name's Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here today with my two co-hosts, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week on Wharton Moneyball here on SiriusXM, the podcast edition and or the edition on SiriusXM. And of course, you too can join the conversation. It's not hard. All you have to do is join us on Twitter at WMoneyBall. That's at WMoneyBall. Or you can email us to our mailbag at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Well, Shane and Adi, clearly one of the best things, parts of our job, besides the interviews we do with guests that are, you know, if you like, infrequent guests like Sam Apple, which we just had, are of course our returning guests who are basically people that are part of the show. And I think we would all agree that Eric Eager meets that criterion. For those of you that don't know, you haven't been listening to Wharton Moneyball, but if you did, you would know that Eric's the VP of Research and Development at Sumer Sports. Um, Prior to joining Sumer, he was with Pro Football Focus, working with clients from all 32 NFL teams, college football. He's been on media entities like NBC, NFL Network, CBS, ESPN, et cetera. Eric, as always, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Fellas, it's so much fun to, to get to talk to you guys. And uh, I, I feel like this this week um, and next is going to be a, a extra special, uh, not only, you know, for me as, as somebody who roots for the Chiefs, but also uh, for all of us as, uh, you know, a Wharton uh, Moneyball training camp alumni, Zach Drapkin gets to uh, take part in his first Super Bowl as a, his first year as a quantitative analyst uh, for the Eagles. I, I don't know if we have wins above replacement for quantitative analysts yet. Uh, but I'm just going to take the time to maybe uh, estimate that it's it's greater than zero uh, this year. So well, you, I can. I, you got to remember, everyone, that uh, he was our assistant producer for this show. That's one of his resume items that uh, that is forgotten. And I can also thank him for the fact that the reason I was at the Giants game and the Eagles game was uh, because of Zach Drapkin and my son Zach as well. So both of them uh, played a big role in that. Well, Eric, let me just start out with. Um, Tell us about your re- instant reaction, your gut reaction right now to what you saw on Sunday. Like, what did you see? You sounded like you were at the Chiefs-Bengals game. 
Um, I was at the Giants, uh, the Eagles 49ers game. But as you look back on the two of those games, one of the things I asked uh, Adi and uh, Shane in Q1 of our show was, like, did you update your beliefs? Like, are the Chiefs better than you thought they were? Are the Eagles better than they thought they were? Or no, everyone's kind of who you thought they were. No, I, you know, my my initial read on the 49ers-Eagles game was whichever team got ahead was going to win. And I know that that's, a, of course, that's the base rate anyway. But I always felt that it was a little higher than the base rate just because, um, and we've seen it in both Eagles playoff games, they're a tremendous team went ahead. Um, you know, they run the football really well. They run the football in a very varied environment. Like they use their quarterback. They use a bevy of running backs. They use, you know, different schemes in that. And, you know, one of the knocks on the Eagles this year was that their schedule is really easy. Um, and I think an additional knock, which doesn't come into play when they play games like that on, on Sunday against a very good Niners team. The Niners didn't have their quarterback, of course, which, which sullies things a little, but, that they didn't play a difficult schedule of game scripts either. Many of their games, especially when Jalen Hurts was playing, they were playing from ahead. And there were games where they played from behind, uh, namely the Washington game where they lost on that Monday night game and the Indianapolis game uh, on the road. They struggled in many of the ways that you would predict a team to struggle when they rely on the run game, namely their quarterback, uh, Jalen Hurts, who I think has you know been fantastic given what he's asked to do. When he's asked to do something a little bit different, um, you know, you don't necessarily see the kind of efficiency you've seen with some of the elite quarterbacks. Now, nothing on Sunday changes that, right? They got out ahead. The other team's quarterback got hurt, and they did exactly what they did against the Giants, which is to run the football, control the game, play great defense. So, no, I don't think Mike Pryor's changed at all in that game. Um, Kansas City versus Cincinnati, I mean, you know, I felt like when the Chiefs traded Tyreek Hill, um, used a bevy of draft picks to, you know, rest- restart, you know, build out their wide receiver core, build out their secondary. I thought that they were going to be a much more resilient team this year, even if they weren't a star, uh, star, you know, laden, right. They lose three wide receivers in the, in the uh, course of that game, they lose their best defensive back. And they were in a situation where Joe Burrow and his amazing wide receivers. Now Tyler Boyd was injured, but the top two guys are still there. We're facing a secondary with three rookie cornerbacks and an additional rookie safety. And they held up. And that was, you know, a, a, a position that I had from the day of the Tyreek Hill trade that many people disagreed with, that they would be resilient in the face of those, those you know, that adversity, you know. So my priority doesn't change on the Chiefs. I, I feel like they were resilient. I don't know if their top end play is as good as it was in previous years, but I think that their medium play um, is, is more uh, persistent with respect to perturbations like that. Uh, so... No, I don't. I don't think so. I think the market's basically exactly where it was uh, on the look ahead as well. So to answer your question, I think you know very long windedly. No, I don't think things change that much for me. Um, I think that you know this week still provides a game that has a lot of very wide distribution of outcomes. Yeah, we were just me just so before I turned over to Shane. We just gave our. I want to ask you the same question I asked uh, Adi and Shane in Q1, which is if you had to give a 95% posterior prediction interval of the game outcome in the Super Bowl, what, I, without telling you ours, score I'll tell you differential ours specifically. What do you say? Score differential. Yes, yeah, score differential. How wide would your interval be? Would it be centered to zero? What, what's your interval? I think I think the yeah I think that the median would be Philadelphia minus one so there'd be Philadelphia winning by a point, um, yeah and then I think that in both directions I think that the 
the confidence interval ends at 14 on either side. All right. Well, let me just say you've matched, except for yours is centered at minus one. Well, we will, we won't kibitz about that. We won't quibble about that. Yours is exactly the same width as the team here. So there's been some consensus that mine was you larger. Need, you need a 28%. What'd you say, Shane? Mine was larger just because I think it's greater than 5% of a blowout on one, one side or the other, but yeah. Well, but, Shane, let me, let me have you go next. I know you want well, to ask. I, I, so, I mean, I, you know, I, one thing that I kind of like when your, your comments about Kansas City's defense specifically, I was impressed with Kansas City kind of weathering a lot of those kind of secondary injuries and, and doing very well. I think a very key part of that, um, you can tell me, you, you know, if you, you agree, was uh, the pressure that they were getting, you know, mm-hmm. on, on the quarterback. And so I think, you know, that – that I mean, Chris Jones was, I think, the number one difference maker in that game, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, I mean, A, do you agree with that? And B, do you kind of feel like that, you know, that second, that the, the amount of pressure they're able to get is going to be less? Because I, I certainly think the Eagles do have a better offensive line than the Bengals do. Yeah, the Eagles are great on offense. And, you know, they, uh, an offensive line, and they exhibit a lot of the team building strengths that I think the folks in this room would would really marvel at. They they took Andre Dillard in the first round uh, and he didn't work. And uh, Jordan Mailata was a, a lower investment player that they threw numbers at the position. And ultimately he ended up working out the offensive line and the team in general is somewhat of that ilk, right? The quarterback even is a player that was a hedge of a bet that they made on another player and Carson Wentz and, you know, and, and things have worked out there because they've, They've had a risk profile that is strong, and that and and that appears no more explicitly than in the offensive line for the Eagles. So yeah, it's going to be harder for the Chiefs. Be that as it may, this Chiefs team is second in the NFL in sacks. Um, you know they have they get a lot of pressure. Their pressure, you know, their defensive line is very star centered at Chris Jones and in the playoffs Frank Clark, but they do have other guys who kind of come in and, and make plays. Michael Dana. Uh, who's you know a third-year player out of Michigan, uh, George Karlakis, who was their first-round pick out of Purdue. I think that they they won't get as much pressure for sure. Um, but also, uh, what, what's interesting is you co- sort of get the fact that Jalen Hurts isn't as good of a quarterback as Joe Burrow, and and the Eagles aren't as deep at receiver as the Bengals. They have Brown, who's amazing, um, and they have uh, Devontae Smith, who's really good, and a tight end in Goddard, who's great. The Bengals, at least at kickoff, had Boyd. Uh, who's a uh, third wide receiver is a former 1000 yard player for them. So uh, I think that the the Eagles are more top heavy at, at the wide receiver position. The chiefs are more evenly distributed in who they guard with. So I think that that helps them, but yeah, to your point, I, the, the Eagles are going to be able to protect better. The question is, is Jalen hurts going to be able to do something with that protection above and beyond above and beyond expectation. That's the question. Adi, please. Uh, so Eric, uh, Explain to me the difference in your ranking between Mahomes and, and Hertz. Obviously, Mahomes is the best and Hertz is lower, but how far do you see that gap? Yeah, I would say on a point spread perspective, you take Mahomes off of the Chiefs and you're probably talking about anywhere. And, you know, points are not evenly distributed in the NFL, but just assume they are for a second. Seven and a half to nine and a half points to the point spread. Um, if you take Mahomes healthy to his backup or a replacement level player, I think that Hertz is probably more in the three and a half to five and a half range. And, and you know, and, and that's the, that's the difficult question. And that's the most difficult question in football, which is if a, a player who does great with all the resources that are afforded to a team by having him on rookie deal money, making a million dollars, how do you project that into the next phase? Which I think is the coolest part of this game. You have a team 
where the quarterback is being helped, of course, by his inexpensive contract. And you have a quarterback whose team has overcome his expensive contract through A, how good he is, and, and, and B, in my opinion, shrewd moves uh, by the front office. Um, I would say, you know, you're probably talking, you know, so what did I say? You're probably talking about a five, five and a half point difference between the two players. Which is actually per game. Per game. Which is, right, which is obviously huge. Fact, which is I enormous, was gonna ask, yeah. I was going to ask a different question, but we might as well stay on Jalen Hurts for a minute here. Um, if you're the Eagles, do you, I mean, it's obviously it's not tomorrow, but eventually they're going to have to decide, is he our quarterback of the future? And are we going to spend $250 million on this guy? Do you see him as far enough away from the, let's say, replacement level player that the Eagles could be projected to get that he's worth the $250 million salary? Another answer you could answer, well, you can answer whatever you want, but another answer could be, I don't know yet. I haven't seen him enough yet. What, what are your thoughts on Hurts? Yeah, I'm inclined to say I don't know, um, but my my into like my first guess is no, and the reason is that the con- the question is actually a little bit, it's actually a little bit easier than what you laid out, which is that the Eagles have two first round picks in this coming draft, and that was because they had three first round picks in the previous draft, and they traded one to New Orleans for one this this next year. Um, the Eagles don't have to make that decision in all reality. If, if they want to move on from Jalen Hurts, they have the ammunition to draft one of the, the top four quarterbacks um, in the draft, Will Levitz, uh, Anthony Richardson, Bryce Young, or um, C.J. Stroud. And they can, and that player, is mu- you know, that player's prior is much above replacement level, which is good, and probably closer. So I would say that Hurts is probably closer to one of those players as a rookie as far as fundamentally – than he would be to Patrick Mahomes. And that, I think, is the hard part because, you know, when somebody like Kyler Murray gets $46 million per year, um, it it sort of signals this idea that there really isn't a – there isn't a lot of price sensitivity uh, in the middle of the market um, for quarterbacks. If a player is – you know, if you you meet the threshold uh, of being a franchise guy, then everybody sort of makes the same amount of money. And that's really where it's difficult and why the Chiefs have such a stranglehold over the AFC, which is the difference between what Mahomes and, say, Derek Carr makes is nowhere close to as big as the difference that Mahomes produces on the field relative to Derek Carr. And, and I think the Eagles being, you know, like I said, they they hired, you know, Zach. So they're they're very clearly smart and they, they have guys like Alec Hallaby. And uh, I even think uh, I don't know if this is, you know, Howie Roseman is a very smart guy as well. Um, I, I think they know this. I think that the real, the difficult question is, are, are there, are there non-analytical things that pop into this decision with namely, or do you want to be the NFL team that churns and burns at certain positions because it might uh, keep players from wanting to join your football team in free agency. I think that that's a little overblown because the best players in the NFL, generally speaking, do not choose their teams. Um, they either come through the draft and are re-signed or they're traded for a la AJ Brown. But that is something to consider because I think that that's the only reason I would consider doing, you know, signing Jalen Hurts to the, the sort of mega contract, given all the parameters that were that the, that the league gives us. Of course, they have at least one to two years to deal with that, because I believe if I'm right, this is Hurts' second year, right? He's just in his second year. And I think he's 21. No, this is Hertz's third year, and so he's eligible for a contract extension after this year. So, oh wow, um, okay, so they don't have that much time. They it's not that easy, it. yeah. And 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 the thing about it that's tricky, and, and actually, somebody in the league who's very smart, actually, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to give it away who it is, but like they they were, they told me 
you know, it's for that reason why Hertz was such an outlier in the draft process to begin with, because usually you have first first round quarterbacks, right? And generally speaking, even top end of the first round, then you have this big chasm of of, of draft position where no quarterbacks get taken and then they get taken like round three. So in the 2021 draft, for example, you had the five or six of five quarterbacks taken in round one, all within the first 15 picks. And then you didn't have another quarterback taken until the second, the last pick in the second round. And that chasm is because of the fifth year option that is afforded to teams when they draft the guy in round one. And that, you know, because what you're seeing, for example, with the 32nd pick in the 2018 draft, Lamar Jackson is, you know, you have, first four years you have the fifth year option which is still cheap relative to market rates and then you have the two years of the tag with hertz now you have three years similar situation where you still have to he he can hold out for a new contract after this year but you don't have the the fourth year of team control the fifth year uh, player option right because of when he was drafted you're saying because of when he was drafted exactly so remind me being drafted in round two means that he doesn't have a fifth year option meaning that next year is the last year of team control for him. So you're just one less year. And, you know, the, the argument that my friend made was that one extra year of team control for a quarterback, if he hits, is worth more than the difference between, uh, you know, draft pick, let's say, 25 and draft pick 45. Adi, you had a question for uh, I, I just wanted I, – I, I didn't know Hertz was in the end of the second round. Is that when they took him? A mid-second round. He was in like second 40s round. or 50s, yeah. Yeah, mid-second round. Zurich, let me ask you another question. Um, you know, one of the things they changed a few years ago, it's been a number of years, is the two-week break between the championship game and the Super Bowl. Obviously, you could argue both teams benefit. Mahomes is going to get a lot healthier, I would think. Um, you could argue Hertz might get healthier as well. He hasn't been particularly healthy. But you could also think about coaching differences between the two. Do you have any thoughts as to who the two-week break might benefit more or it's really a wash? It's not, or do you think it's definitely Kansas City because Mahomes might have been at 40% strength and now he's going to be a lot closer to 100% and you might as well have the best player be as healthy as possible? Yeah, I think this is easy. I think this is, is a very good question, I think generally. And I think in this particular case, the answer is fairly easy. I think it is the Chiefs. Um, Sirianni, uh, we do something at Sumer called like basically win probability added overexpected, which essentially, and I know audio come back and, and I know he's, he's right here, but you'd like the public win probability models have their problems, but like, let's assume that they're okay for now. And, and on average, you know, the, the average is correct. Uh, confidence intervals could be useful there, but basically this idea of given the situation, given score differential, given the league averages, how often does a coach make the right decision on four. So it, it could be punt when they're, you're supposed to punt, go when you're supposed to go. Same thing with two-point conversion. Same thing with timeouts taken. Same thing with delay of game taken. You guys and actually you, compute this at Sumer? Yes. And you and you take wow. you look at this and say, because, you know, you can imagine that, you know, teams are hiring us for head coaching searches and stuff like that. So we're looking at in-game sort of decision-making ideas, right? And relative to expectations so not just not just the raw probabilities right so what we want to do is say the model might say go for fourth and one at your own 30 but no one does so let's not ding well sirianni just did in the nfc exactly so 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 to your point nick sirianni has added about eight eight tenths of a win to his team in those in-game decisions relative to the average coach so my argument though is that kind of stuff Nick Sirianni is going to do regardless if the game's played a week later, two weeks later, tomorrow, 
Like that stuff is going to be Syria in Sirianis. It's going to be the people that are prepping him for the game. It's also going to be his intuition. That stuff, he has an edge over the league, but that edge isn't, that edge is independent of the opponent, right? Andy Reid is above average at all that stuff, which is good. Um, in fact, they scored a touchdown on a fourth and one in that playoff game the other day that a lot of teams would have kicked a field goal on. But Andy Reid's real edge is in scripted plays. It's in, um, you know, opponent scouting. It's in creativity. And I think that those things, that edge grows with the number of weeks between a game. And, you know, it was like Andy Reid had some incredible record post by. Um, oh, no, no, no. I, I remember when he was with the Eagles, they listed, it was, I mean, at one point, I don't think he'd ever lost, but maybe he'd he'd ever lost, 90, right. 90 I, he plus percent win percentage. Yeah, and he did lose a playoff game, and I, a playoff game I went to against the Steelers off of a bye when he had Alex Smith, but it's instructive, though, that every single year that he's been the Chiefs head coach with Mahomes, they, when they had the first round bye, they always made the AFC Championship game. Like, he never lost a playoff game off a of bye other than the Steelers game, and when he was the head coach of the Eagles, they made, what was it, four straight NFC title four. games, and yep. most of them were off of having the bye. So he's a bit – like, I think Andy Reid's edge is in the – it is such that preparation enhances it. I think Nick Sirianni's edge, which is existent and very – and for us, quantifiable, his edge is kind of independent of, of who he's playing and hence what doesn't benefit as much from the bye as, as Andy's does. As a Obviously, as a Chiefs fan, how – Titanic do you think the outcome of this game was you know what I was listening I was listening to sports talk radio all week if Joe Burrow and the Bengals had won the game besides having been to the Super Bowl twice in a row he would have been four he would have been four and zero against Mahomes including beating him twice in Arrowhead Stadium so mm-hmm. in your mind for the restoring the order that Patrick Mahomes is still the king of the hill how important just did you think this game was for, I don't want to say for Mahomes' legacy, but you could say, you know, he's had five, in my view, the greatest first five years of anyone's career. One what well, I'm sorry, Shane. I think as a quarterback, he's really? had the best five years. That's just my opinion. We can debate. You can get to Brady in a second. Um, 10 and 0, 10 and 0 in the playoffs. In the first well, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. All right. Never, no, all right. He's had, he's had at least in the top two quarterbacks. Statistically, he's been the most impressive. Yeah. So how, how important did you think this game was for Patrick Mahomes' legacy? Yeah, and I think with Brady, it's a little bit of an interesting thing because quarterback was less important to the cause back when Brady was starting out. But very similarly to when Brady was starting out, like Brady had an 0-3. Actually, I think Brady finished his career 0-3 against Jake Plummer. And Jake Plummer beat him famously in his first playoff loss in 2005 um now burrow is a much better player than jake Plummer was but it, it sort of speaks to that like i think my my heart right you know as somebody who's a fan and like looking at legacy and knowing that winning the super bowl is the ultimate goal it meant the, that game meant the world right like it was you know because uh the Bengals were a team that like prior to last year had never won a road playoff game in the history of their franchise and now Joe Burrow's coming in and winning two a season for uh, you know a couple of years in a row, and you know it takes the it takes the what I mean to be the greatest of all time. I think you always have to be a part of the conversation. And I think if Joe Burrow would have beaten Patrick Mahomes, but and they don't play against each other, you know, but if the Bengals with Burrow had beaten Mahomes right. in in this game, I think all the attention for the offseason is on Joe Burrow, and rightfully so. Joe Burrow is an amazing quarterback. I think 
my my head still says the Chiefs had a 75% win probability at one point in every one of those games. And and so it still means that the Chiefs, in my opinion, would have been are still a better team than the Bengals and Mahomes a better quarterback than Burrow. But there's also a, you know, as an analytics person, it kills me to say this, but in the minds of people, results matter. So it mattered a lot, I think, for folks who who for the folks that, you know, sort of write the write the history books. For guys like us. If the Bengals and Chiefs play week one next year, the, the Chiefs are going to be favored, and they should be, independent of what happened in that game the other day. But for the legacy, I think Mahomes needed to win that game. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm kind of a uh, just to kind of reinforce a lot of what you're saying. I mean, I think, you know, I always think, I mean, Mahomes, you know, I, I can go both ways because I think Mahomes' legacy is going to be phenomenal regardless. And you could kind of argue he's still young. He's got plenty of years. Like if he happens to lose again, the AFC championship game, they're probably going to be back in it next year and for many years to come. But I mean, the counter argument of course, is that at least in his early career, this is the time when to the extent that it's ever easy, this is the easiest time. He's not as expensive as he's going to be. It's going to be only, you know, more difficult, I think, to kind of keep renewing this amazing team around him as time goes on and he's going to get older and maybe he hasn't peaked yet, but you know, it's obviously it's not going to like 10 years from now, it's not going to be as easy to do what he's doing. And so I think, you know, kind of getting these wins in when he kind of should, when he is as probably as good as he's ever going to be is, is, you know, obviously in a cumulative sense going to be important long-term. Well, Shane, history is on your side in that one, right? Like, because you look at um, Ben Roethlisberger won two Super Bowls. I think in his first, you know, he started in 04. His last Super Bowl win was 10, or sorry, 08. Last time he even made a Super Bowl was 2010. So he went the second half of his career without ever playing in one. Dan Marino's only Super Bowl appearance was in year two. Aaron Rodgers' only Super Bowl win was in his third year as a starter and then never again. Uh, far more than half of his career has been played without a Super Bowl. And even, um, and you know, Elway, it was weird, but Elway made most of his Super Bowls in the first half of his career and then yeah. had – the 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 dirt you know he had the the separation there and then he won the two at the end and we always think oh it was continuously great it's like no actually not the Denver Broncos drafted Tommy Maddox out of UCLA in the first round of the 2020 20 uh, sorry 1992 draft to replace Elway and because Dan Reeves had gotten you know sort of sick of him he had more interceptions than touchdowns a few years in a row there and and even back to Tom Brady. Brady won three in his first four years as a starter. And then they went a whole decade. Like, Tom, think about this. Tom Brady's career is amazing as it is and as outlier as it is and how improbable it is as it is. He went 10 straight years without winning a Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. So I think, Shane, like, you're absolutely right. Like, there's no – and we all think, oh, you know, especially this year, I think proves it out that, like, Mahomes is the the unicorn where you pay him all the money, you build a roster kind of out of stars and scrubs, and you can still make it work. But that's not guaranteed. We're not guaranteed to have a Chiefs draft like the last one where they have, you know, six or seven starter caliber players in the draft. Like, yeah. we just know that statistically that's not going to happen and players get older. What happens with Travis Kelsey? Yeah, I mean, it's, hard, it's harder. I mean, it's I mean because obviously you're, it's also benefit. You're, you're benefiting the fact that, I mean, Mahomes is clearly the best quarterback in football, but the Chiefs are obviously an excellent organization. It's yeah. hard to maintain organizational excellence because – People keep trying to grab, you know, it's well, going to be harder to hold on to your great coordinators and all, all this other stuff. Yeah, so. The guy, you know, Brant Tillis, who, who was uh, who constructed the Patrick Mahomes contract, which if you look at it is one of the, um, you know, 
the the best contracts that anybody's ever written in the NFL for the team. Um, he was interviewed for a general manager job just a couple of years ago. What happens if they don't have him or what, what happens, you know, like they've lost offensive coordinators, but interestingly, the one guy that they haven't lost is Eric the enemy. Like Andy, all of Andy Reid's coordinators have gone on, you know, Doug Peterson, you know, Frank Reich, you know, uh, all these, they, they keep, uh, Kafka went to the Giants, the quarterbacks coach. Now he's interviewing Greg coaching jobs. Eric Bieniemy, strangely, and I think there, there's, you know, a number of reasons for maybe why he hasn't gotten a chance to be head coach, but he's been the offensive coordinator the whole Mahomes era. He has not gotten it. There is that continuity even there, which most great teams, you look at Buffalo, um, you know, Dable, the, the offensive coordinator there, he went to go coach the Giants this year. And, the, and you know, the Buffalo Bills, who were favored to win the Super Bowl going into the year, you know, fell a little bit short this year, not – you know, it's just it's marginal things like that that can keep you from winning Super Bowls that I think you were you're favored for to going into the year. And so, yeah, I mean, if Mahomes d- and the Chiefs don't win that game on Sunday, I think it, doubt starts creeping in. It's like you've had your five cracks at winning an yeah, AFC right. championship game and two cracks at winning a Super Bowl. What is expectation reasonably for the rest of your career? So, Eric, yeah, it's interesting because you, you started off this uh, this this tangent, this direction of the conversation by reminding everyone that results shouldn't be everything, right? Because in fact, we as analysts are always talking about not, warning not to result or resulting, and that we should be looking at the decisions and the actual plays and not get too t- tied up down by the randomness of the outcome. And then, of course, you, you, you described all these great quarterbacks, essentially. M- evaluating them by the number of Super Bowls, which by itself we know is a hugely random yeah. statistic. So let's, I want to ask a question specifically about Mahomes um, and other quarterbacks. Uh, are there different types of quarterbacks that can be expected to have longer careers? Is this style of play? And, and where, does, where does Mahomes sort of fit in that? And, and even Jalen Hurts, I mean, because he's going to have a renewal in a couple of years. And is, can you predict the, the, the trajectory based on the type of quarterback in, in any way? It's strange because I think that there's a couple like, you know, um, correlated things there, right? Like the, the NFL has changed, um, you know, the, the style, like, so Peyton Manning and Tom Brady and guys like that, who are kind of statuesque quarterbacks sit in the pocket. Like I think the league has evolved away from their style of play. And so quarterbacks that come up that emulate them are going to be left behind because they don't fit. Whereas quarterbacks like Manning and Brady, they were so good that teams fit their schemes to them, you know? And so, it's a little bit hard as far as styles of play. I also like, frankly, don't have a great model for what a style of play is. Like how would you categorize Steve Young, um, a guy who was a brilliant thrower, but also ran a four five forty and could run with his legs and score. Um, you know how, you know, I think we all can categorize Lamar Jackson, but also Lamar Jackson prior to Justin Fields was a singular player. I mean, when, when Michael Vick ran for a thousand yards in 2006, two thirds of his yards were on uh, scrambles. And when Lamar Jackson first ran for a thousand yards in 2019, two thirds of his yards or more, I believe, were on designed runs, plays where the were running plays that the quarterback just ran. So even then, like, you know, got, you know, there are some singular players there. And so, um, you know, I think a, a guy like Mahomes, you know, just given the nature of his contract, is probably going to play, of course, another decade or so in the league. Uh, but, you know, it, it really has, it really has you know, it really is a hard problem. I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm sort of at the, the, the humility of, of this question because I, I just really, I, I don't know how to model it as well because I think that the non-stationarities of the league are, are, are so substantial that, um, you know, even evaluating Mahomes, like what kind of offense he's going to be in in five years is, is a vexing question. 
Sorry, yeah, and I mean, like, part, oh, sorry, go part, ahead, I, I mean, just, you know, part of that complication, too, is, I mean, I mean, you know, first pass, my intuition is like, oh, well, Mahomes, to the extent that he, you know, has, has part of his greatness is based on mobility, that's probably not going to age in the same way everything else is and probably opens them up for greater injuries, etc. And so that but but at the same time, you know, I mean, obviously, the, the league is evolving the game, as you said, and part of that evolution is really trying to kind of you know, change the rules such that quarterbacks are more protective from injury. And of course, injuries are, some injuries are unavoidable, but, you know, I mean, again, it's, it is a moving target. It's hard to kind of know what, like even a quarter, the quarterback position will look like 10 years from now. Yeah. It's, it's such a, it's such an interesting question. I, and I've had people, you know, especially back in my time at PFF who were, you know, would call me up and be like, Hey, like, what do you think of the PFF quarterback grades? And I, I was actually, there's a, a Twitter thread at Eric eager underscore where I sort of talk about, um, why I think in games with quarterbacks like Joe Burrow versus games like quarterbacks like Patrick Mahomes, why maybe the PFF grades miss a little bit of what Mahomes does and misses some of the negatives that a guy like Burrow does and why, you know, those grades are, you know, when you, when you write, you know, the grading system is based upon a rule book. And so when a guy comes in and kind of changes what our assumptions are about the position, you know, that changes, you know, when you think about like some, a, a metric like completion percentage over expected, right? Um, which is, I think, a cool metric. I don't think it ranks quarterbacks perfectly, of course, um, but sometimes a quarterback can come in and change our assumptions of what should go in that expectation. And so if we don't update our models or or, or we don't have a, a conversation about what should go in those models, a quarterback could rank poorly or positively in that metric because the expectation is wrongly calibrated. And, 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 that, and that, you know, is a very real problem, I think, in this league. And because you know, the league has now, I know 65 quarterbacks started this year, which is a record for non-strike years, but, but you only have 32 quarterbacks starting every single year for more or less. And, you know, you have, it's just a really hard problem not to overfit, you know? So Eric, let me just, since we only have about 30 seconds left, let me ask you, what's your prediction for the game? I know you put your confidence interval at Eagles minus one, which would imply there's no reason that shouldn't be your guess. But what, what is your forecast for the game, and what do you think will be the difference in the game? Yeah, I think from a betting perspective, I really don't. You know, the, the market's minus one and a half. Uh, I respect that number. Um, so the Eagles should be slightly favored, in my opinion. So I guess I'll pick the Eagles. Um, but it's slight, right, to, to you guys' point. I, I think that the the number that I really like is under in this game. The, the total in, in, in the betting markets is 49 and a half. Um, I, I think that this is a game where – there's a lot of situations where this goes under the total. Either the Eagles, you know, play a game like they have in their first two games, which both went under this total, where they dominate and kind of, you know, you know, put their hand on the other team's head and and they and they can't reach them. Or um, the Chiefs' defense plays the way that they played on Sunday, which is lights out and and a young quarterback like Kurt struggles, and the Chiefs win a, a game uh, with a with a banged up quarterback and a offense that isn't quite as high powered as it normally is. So I, I I think the Eagles should be favored slightly in this game, uh, and I think that the the total goes under forty nine and a half. Yeah, I, I I think Eric, it's it's an interesting analysis. And I think let me just say the following: I think if you told most people it's a very high scoring shootout game, they probably don't favor the Eagles in that type of game. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it, I think the Eagles, and, but at the same time, I. We there's so much uncertainty with respect to what Jalen Hurts can do when the team plays from behind. Um, that if the Chiefs do get out ahead, a Andy Reid 
is not a coach that likes to blow teams out. Like he is, it's sort of weird narrative, but he has this like respect for, you know, the rest of the league. And at tournament times, he's, he's blown as the, as the chiefs head coach, three 18 point playoff leads or more. And, and so that comes back to bite him. Namely, if they get out ahead, like I think they're going to do things that are conducive to a lower scoring game. Yep. And the Eagles are a team that we don't have enough data on them in, in games where they're behind to be super confident that they would do what a lot of teams do when, when they're behind and that score points. Yep. Well, Eric, I'd like to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Eric Eager is the VP of Research and Development at Sumer Sports. Longtime guest of the show. You can follow Eric at Twitter at Eric Eager underscore. Eric, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Eric, Shane, Adi, you guys are the best. This is so much, so much fun. I can't wait for two weeks of uh, really heady uh, football analysis from everybody. So take care, guys. Thanks a lot. So that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Please join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to the fourth quarter here of Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradler, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. I'm here with my two co-hosts today, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen, both professors of statistics. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball, the podcast edition or the edition that you're listening to on SiriusXM Business Radio. So, guys, we obviously have spent a lot of the show for good reason talking about the NFL. Uh, We spent part of the show talking to Sam Apple about uh, nutrition and cancer. Um, but there was also a very big event that happened this weekend, which happened in tennis. Uh, the Australian Open ended. Uh, Novak Djokovic won his 10th Australian Open, his 22nd Grand Slam title, tying uh, Rafa Nadal. Um, he's back to number one in the world, which just extends his most number of weeks at number one. So I wanted to just ask you guys a couple of questions. Can we? I have a bunch of questions, but let's start with the simple one. Can we agree that just purely based on their record, Djokovic and Nadal have separated themselves slightly from Federer? Both had winning records against Federer. Um, Nadal much more so than uh, Djokovic, by the way. Shane, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, um, Federer is still in my mind, I think, you know, kind of belongs with them just because. He was so elite, at, you know, before these guys came along. But I mean, yeah. when you now look right. at, you know, obviously the fact that he's lost out kind of in both the, in terms of the cumulative kind of wins. And I think it's particularly telling the head to head. And, you know, it's it's uh, one could, I guess, if one was to really defend Federer, you know, the head to head, he was a little bit older. Like, it's not like their careers exactly synced up, but they played for a long time against each other and both. You know, he does kind of he drops down to kind of I I I think if I had to put like a distance, I would put, you know, him as like kind of, you know, a third that's getting more distant to the one and two. Uh, Any reaction to the Djokovic Nadal and if maybe Federer is on a list, so you know, peak ELO rating has Djokovic as the greatest player of all time. But let me just comment. That was eight years ago at age 27. It has actually it doesn't have Nadal second, by the way. It has, I forget if it's Rod Laver and John McEnroe who are somewhere, their peak ratings. Now, we could all debate what's wrong with ELO ratings. Um, then comes Nadal, then comes Federer. But, Adi, any thoughts about, is there any separation in your mind now between Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer? Well, yeah, I'm going to have to probably end up just more or less 
reiterating and agreeing with what Shane said. I think he, he, he talked about there is a difference now. They've won sufficiently more more um, uh, majors. And uh, but Federer, I mean, for, for me, Federer started this whole thing. Right. He was he's a little older than they are. He's sort of this 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 incredible greatness sort of started with him. And then all of a sudden, then Nadal and Djokovic came along. Right. I think, I think Nadal and then Djokovic. And yep. uh, and so many of Nadal's victories, of course, were in the French. Um, and that the head to head thing is a little complicated because they don't always do it at the same. And um, it's, it's you got to adjust that carefully with a model. And so they, is a very yeah, slow moving model. It's not they haven't done in terms of a model. What they have done is they've compared, quote unquote, peak Federer against peak yeah, Nadal, and, and, peak and, Federer and, against peak Djokovic. Nadal does. Sorry, Federer doesn't win those either. Those comparisons either. But it's not horrible. But if you have you seen it done any other way other than ELO, which is a very um, limited way, it's a, it's a very nice, it's a great system because you can essentially calculate it and recalculate it in your fingertips. It doesn't require a model, no maximum likelihood um, uh, calculation, uh, there's no integration or a matrix factorization. It just happens, but it also has a, some serious drawbacks. I'm curious to know whether there's some articles written about um, using more substantive statistical methods to adjust for some of those differences. Um, and maybe that would be an interesting project for someone if it hasn't been done. Yeah, I haven't seen that done. But it also made me contrast, by the way, you know, on the women's side, we actually have had three players that have won that many majors. Um, we have Margaret Court. Of course, that was not during the Open era, but she won 24. Uh, Serena Williams, definitely during the Open era, won 23. And Steffi Groff, 122. Now, what's interesting about those three, and this is maybe what makes all of us as tennis fans so amazed, all three of them played in different eras. Like, Court was 60s and 70s. Serena's was kind of 90s and 2000s, 2010s. And Groff was like 80s and 90s. So, I mean, they they really didn't. In fact, I'm pretty sure they never played each other. Could Groff have played Serena early in her career? Maybe. Maybe there was one match, but nothing meaningful. These three each won 20-something in different eras. Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic all did it during this same era. And I, I go back to what I said last week. I can't help but wonder a counterfactual world where two of them don't exist and one of these guys has 50 majors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how else to think about it. I don't have yeah, any. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess. Maybe 60, well, I mean, by the way. Way Adi, maybe I'm underestimating. It. Maybe it's 60. The, well, the other way you think about it, I guess, is just stochastically, like, even – you know, Djokovic, whoever we agree is the best is going to have a bad game, you know, a bad match here or there. Um, it just, it would be a bunch of kind of randos that basically are like one-offs that like ended up being the winners of that. Except now when Djokovic has a bad match, it's always Nadal that's there or whatever type of thing. You know, I mean, I mean, honestly, Serena, Serena is basically the model for what I'm talking about is that Serena never really, she was such a dominant player that, I mean, who would be, you know, kind of her biggest rival. Her During sister? her career, Venus Williams. Yeah, right. But, I mean, it, it's a stretch, right? It's, and it's not even controversial who is better. No, no, right. You know, whereas, I mean, with Steffi Graf, I mean, Steffi Graf, like, I at least lived through, so I can kind of speak to that. I mean, she had a peak kind of time, you know, when she, like, won the Golden Slam and all this type of stuff that I think is almost unprecedented. But, you know, I think back to her career, and she had real rivals like Martina Navratilova and Monica Sellers, etc. Whereas, I, you know, I, I guess, I don't know, I mean, maybe Djokovic and the counterfactual where Nadal and Federer 
you know, didn't exist, like just like run out, like, you know, as one, like, you know, 20 majors in a row or something like that. But maybe he just, he, even he in that regime would have an off match or two and, but it would just be an accumulation of a bunch of one-off players that happen to take advantage of it. Well, let's do the same thing, guys, in our last couple of minutes talking about tennis, and then we'll move on to the uh, MLB because we had some Hall of Fame news. Um, let's actually, um, just like I asked you guys to compute prediction intervals or posterior predictive intervals for the Super Bowl score, let me ask you to do the same thing, but for the number of majors of those two gentlemen. So we know Federer stopped. He's retired. He's at 20. Both Djokovic and Nadal are at 22. Um Nadal obviously is more injury prone, has been injured. Djokovic is healthy right now and number one player in the world. He's also about a year younger than, uh, than Nadal. Uh, they're 35 and 36 respectively. So Adi, I'll start with you. Um, let's start with Djokovic. Djokovic is currently at 22. Um, what's your 95% prediction interval for how many majors he ends up with? Well, the lower interval is 22. <laughs> That's an easy one. Um, so you and think, I, just to be clear, you think there's a I at least chance a two and a half percent chance that he wins zero more? Yeah, I would say two and a half percent chance. I mean, yeah, of course, injury and uh, it's it's not. I mean, the, the the question is how reliable that estimate is. But my 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 sense of that it is yes, it would have to include 22. Okay, I mean, and where's the upper bound? Curious to see what you guys would say. Um, if I had to do an upper. Um, and upper is a funny one because upper is going to get you got a long tail there. Um, I would probably say 27, which is a lot. But it, yeah, 95 percent is a big interval. People don't realize how big an interval is required to have 95 percent probability of prediction or confidence, depending on which direction you're talking about, past or future. It's a, it's a lot of probability. you got to exclude. Um, you got to include almost everything you think can happen. And uh and we didn't know within reasonability. So that's why I go high. Shane, uh, Adi's between 22 and 27. Where are you? Because I don't want to do the addition. Um, I'm just going to give you the number of more majors, an interval for both of them, the number yeah. of additional ones. From yeah, that's forward. fine. Um, for Nadal, I'm going to go zero to five. For Djokovic, I'm going to go zero to eight. By the way, my prediction was for Djokovic. Um, you're even going bigger than me. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I mean, because I think Nadal, uh, Nadal, uh, eight. Wow, he's 35 years old. Well, so let uh, me... yeah, but I mean, he's basically yeah. like there's four per year. Like Nadal is lower because obviously French, great, but I think he's got a much lower probability than Djokovic. Oh, matter other... of fact, Shane, I think there's a very high probability. Nadal never wins another major besides the French at this point and yeah. his injury proneness, the way other it's the hard courts have never been his best surface. It's remarkable actually how many times he's won on hard courts in Wimbledon, given those aren't his best surface. Yeah. So my, my, my zero to five confidence interval is really like how many more years can he keep winning the French? So um, I, I, to be honest with you, I'm so tempted audience chain, even, but I don't want your ridicule. I'm so tempted not to have zero in my <laughs> for Djokovic. I really don't want to have zero in my interval. But Adi, when you say it really, a 95% interval is so wide, it has to capture all the possibilities. Yeah. Look, he hurt his hamstring earlier this year. He hurts his hamstring seriously. He's out for six months to a year. Absolutely zero has to be in the interval. Can I, can I, can I fight back a little bit? This 95 comes from Fisher because he did the 5%. 
it's bad. Why do we have to keep producing 95%? What, what, what percent intervals do you want? 99? I, I think that we should be, I mean, this is a question mark. I think intervals that are 80% are more interesting um, because it's the fat part of the distribution and things will narrow up pretty much more tightly. Um, I, I think that we, 90 people don't understand, we as statisticians have a really good sense of how much probability can, can fit in, how many, how many crazy shit. It can happen in within the 95. All right, well, let me ask you. All right, let's, I'll have you go again. So if it's an 80% interval, is one your lower number? Yes, yes. for Djokovic, okay. for sure, it's my lower yeah. number. Yeah, I mean, I think it's more interesting. I mean, again, it depends on what what is the interval supposed to represent? I mean, under you know, I've always interpreted yeah. intervals as like, what, what do we kind of expect to happen? Surprise. Like, well, what's what? And, and so I would, if I was to kind of go beyond 95, you know, away from 95, I'd be tempted to kind of go you know, higher certainty as opposed so to. I, yeah. The way I kind of do my calculation is basically about, you know, what's the first question you have to ask yourself in my view is how many more majors do you think they'll actually play? And for me, for Djokovic, I think he can play 20 more fifth. It, it, I mean, I think he can play for another five years. I do. I think Federer played till he was almost 40. And, and Djokovic, if anything, you could argue is in superior condition to anybody maybe who's ever played. If he plays five more years and plays 20 majors, he can't win one out of four, one out of three of those majors. Yeah. That's five to six more. That's why that's, to me, the center of my interval. I think he wins five or six more. Um, I don't think it's much higher than that, but I also don't think it's much lower. If you ask me for a 68% interval, Adi, which is plus or minus one standard deviation, I would probably go two to six for Djokovic, maybe even three to seven. I think he's got a very good chance of winning multiple more majors. And probably, I don't think 27, by the way, for his final total is that bad a guess. Mm -hmm. Um, It's that that's not impossible at all. Um, well, we'll see. But it, it was it was a, obviously a momentous time in tennis. And the way he looked, look, you remove Nadal and Federer in many cases. It's not even obvious who the next great is in tennis. I mean, Carlos Alcaraz did win the U.S. Open. He's now injured. He was number one in the world. But I mean, is he going to beat Djokovic on a routine basis? No one else seems to even have it. Medvedev beat him once when Djokovic was going for the Grand Slam. But on a routine basis, it's hard to pick anybody over Djokovic right now. He'd be the heavy favorite. He's, I think, he, I know he's the betting favorite at the French. Despite Nadal being Nadal, Djokovic is the favorite at the French. So we'll see what happens. So, guys, right as we went off the air last week, actually, right, or sorry, went off, went off our taping last week, um, they announced the Hall of Fame balloting. And Adi, it was kind of, you guys remember our predictions last week. I do. The two people, there was Scott Rowland and was it Wagner? Uh, Helton. Todd Helton. Helton. Sorry, Helton. We're the Helton. two people. First base. And, yeah. And we both tried to, we all tried to guess, are both of them going to get in? One of them going to get in, but we didn't know exactly which one or none of them going to get in. We obviously got the one, one slightly over the bar, one slightly under the bar. We only have a couple minutes left, but Adi, let's start with you, our yeah, Hall so of Famer. I, I, what I was remember, your reaction? I remember um, my forecast said that I, if I rated the four outcomes, I, I would have given about 30% chance to neither and about, and then the next thing was Helton, and the next one would be, uh, no, sorry, the next one would be Roland and Helton, and then and then both. Those are the orderings. Um, so I I knew that I, that combining, I thought one getting in was the most likely scenario, uh, but I didn't think either of them was was more likely than zero. 
Um, but it was Helton. He was leading. I would have, he, ba- he barely squeaked in. It was absolutely a squeak. It was squeak. Roland, around. you mean Roland, Roland, squeak, Roland, 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 squeak Roland just squeaked in and Helton just missed. Um, I think Helton will go next year. Uh, I mean, it's hard to say. We have Sheffield. He's is on is on the is coming up. He might be his last year next year. Um, he's surging. Uh, I'd love to see Sheffield go. You know, former Yankee. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I think both Wasn't of them. Wasn't he like the cream in the clear guy? One of the cream in the clear guys. Yeah, yeah, cream in the clear. <laughs> oh, that's big poppy. Go ahead, Adi, to what you were that's saying. Big poppy. Thank you very much. Um, but I don't see other than other than Ichiro and Beltre coming down the pike. Um, the 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 ballots aren't jammed up, which is going to give a lot of openings for a lot of these guys to kind of get in. Yeah, I mean, Atrial and Beltre will both be first ballot. I think they're first ballots, right? They're um, different years, I think. I think Beltre's next year and Atrial the year after. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's true. Uh, Shane. Any reaction to the Hall of Fame ballot that you heard about? No, I mean, I, I ended up. I, I I think I was right in my guess, but it you was were right in your guess. It was just luck. I mean, I think you know. To the extent that it's justified just beyond luck, I think Rollins kind of got positively. Yeah, I mean, we're all kind of guessing at the mentality of old baseball writers when we do this, right? <laughs> but like, you know, that they like defense and they don't like Coors Field. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary because yeah. uh, Scott Rollins' accomplishments yeah. were yeah. maybe greater on the defensive side. Guys, let me just ask you in the last one minute we have quickly 30 seconds from each of you. Any surprise that Jeff Kent who I know he has the most home runs ever for a second baseman, maybe has the most RBIs for a second baseman. He's done. Ten years is done. He's he's off the ballot. Shane, quickly, 30 seconds, your reaction, then Adi, your reaction. Unpopular with the media, didn't play good defense. Yes, Adi. especially in that defense is important because, frankly, second basemen just generally stink on the yeah. offense side. And being good at something that gen- – I, I don't think the writers are doing position adjustments the way you think they should. Well – I was just surprised that he ended up at 40-something percent, uh, given that, you know, in some sense, when you look at his war, now we could debate defensive war and war, um, he was actually, he should have been in the Hall of Fame if you do kind of that kind of simple comparison, him to other second basemen based on war. Well, guys, that's been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. Um, Thank my co-host, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. I'd like to thank our producer, as always, Matt Datz, who gets us ready for the show. I'd like to thank our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, who makes all of this work. Uh, guys, this has been two hours of sports and statistics here on Morton Moneyball. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics. We'll see you next week here on Morton Moneyball.